So imagine with me that the year is 100 A.D. and that we are all seated together in a Roman Colosseum with thousands of other people. And the people are, are eager for the, the show to begin. There's a, a restless energy that is rippling through the, the crowd and the Colosseum. And then the, the doors open and out into the arena of the Colosseum, a group of men and women walk out. These men and women, they're not gladiators. They're not warriors that are brandishing weapons. If you just look at their appearance, they're fairly unimpressive. And as they walk out into the arena, the crowd all begins to chant in unison their, their boos. And many of them cast down insults, calling these people Christians. You Christians. They're there that day because they have refused to bow and worship before the emperor. They've refused to treat the Roman emperor as if he's a god. They've refused to bow before the, the altars to all of the different pagan gods, refused to throw the pinch of salt before those altars in an act of worship. And for this, the emperor has sentenced them to death in the arena. The emperor has this, this logic that that if he shows other Christians what happens when you refuse to worship him or ref refuse to join the, the Roman way, that very quickly Christianity is going to dissolve just as quickly as it began. Another door opens. Lions enter into the arena. And the crowd erupts in cheers. And it's only moments later that the blood of these Christians dampens the dirt. It is such an odd scene that you see playing out before you because the, this crowd, they're loud and they're angry and they're unruly. But these, these unimpressive Christians, they are strangely at peace. It seems as if they have no fear about what's to happen. In fact, you notice that as the the lions enter into the arena, these Christians start to sing in unison a hymn as the lions prepare to maul them. And after they're killed, everybody in the, the crowd begins to cheer, but there are some who don't cheer. Instead, they sit there and they are absolutely stunned by what they just witnessed. They cannot believe the display of courage and faith that just played out in front of them. And the question they're asking is, one, who are these Christians? And two, who is this Christ to whom they are so faithful and so loyal? The church father Tertullian in the second century said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What our enemy, the devil, meant for evil, what he did to try and extinguish the tiny flame of the church actually became kerosene that, that turned this movement of the church, this, this Christ-following movement, into an unstoppable wildfire. I, I'm beginning with this story because 
Today, we're continuing through the Gospel of Mark, and we need to remember that the Gospel of Mark was originally written to a specific audience. It was written to Christians living in Rome, Christians who were were daily facing very real persecution and even the threat of martyrdom. And so Mark writes them this, this gospel to encourage them to hang on. Hang on, don't give up hope. Be assured of the resurrection unto eternal life. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. So last week we, sent, we ended in Mark chapter 6 with Jesus sending 12 disciples in pairs out to the surrounding villages. And he gave them orders as you go, do the same things you've been seeing me do. You know, minister to people who are sick, set people who are demon-oppressed free, proclaim the, the call to repentance and the hope that we have in my name, in, G, in the name of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see today as we continue on from there is just as the, the gospel is advancing and the kingdom of God is growing, Satan is going to throw a counterpunch. He's going to try and, and do a, a, a desperate act to, to stem the tide, the rising tide uh, of this Christ-following movement. So join me as we pray for the, the reading of God's word. Father God, we thank you and praise you for all who have gone before us, for faithful men and women who have set their eyes on you, and they didn't turn to the right or the left. Lord, we thank you for this godly heritage. We ask that you would shape us, transform us today by the power of your word, that we too might fix our eyes on you and run the race that you have laid out before us. I pray this in the power of your great name. Amen. We're going to begin by just circling back a few verses. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus has sent out his disciples. The disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well-known. This disciple-sending movement that Jesus has adopted, it's working. Jesus' name is becoming well-known. What people are not talking about is the name of Andrew and Simon and the name of James and John and, and Matthew and Thomas. No, those people are going out and people are talking about the name of Jesus because that is the name that is being proclaimed. And so everyone is starting to, to learn about Jesus. He's becoming famous. King Herod hears about this. And like most kings, King Herod is deeply insecure. And he's threatened by this person who's becoming so well-known, this, this person who's winning the hearts of the people. Kings by nature are insecure. Because human power is such a fragile, precarious thing. When I was in elementary school, some of you will, will identify with this. It's probably not a game that gets played today, but one of our favorite games to play in the winter was King of the Hill. Uh, they would push the snow, the plow would push it up into a huge mountain, and then the game of King of the Hill was simply who could get to the top of the hill 
and knock everyone else off and, and stay there as long as possible. And when you got to the top of the king hill, uh, the top of the hill, and you threw other people off, you'd beat your chest like you were King Kong, and you know, yell out to everyone to hear "King of the Hill." Well, in my school, we had uh, a student, a classmate of mine, who was bigger, about a half a foot bigger than everyone else, and stronger than everyone else, and he was always king of the hill. And, and, and he, he won every day, but even he couldn't stay there forever, because what we would do is we'd team up. We'd team up to go up, and we'd take him down, throw him off the, the, the mountain of snow, and then we'd have to turn on one another, because there can only be one king of the hill. All earthly power has the danger of being reduced to a high-stakes game of king of the hill. Insecure kings will do whatever it takes, whatever they think they must do to hold on to their power, which is what many people are fearing today about Vladimir Putin. This war is not going as as he had hoped. He's got this appearance of weakness, and, and as he has this appearance of weakness, he's becoming more threatened. And in order to maintain his power, he now has to, to double down to, to, because he's in a desperate situation. There's no way out for him to appear to hold on to power other than doubling down. This is King Herod's world. This is the world that King Herod lives in. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you'll remember, had his go around with Jesus. Herod the Great was the one that the Magi came to and said, where is the one born king of the Jews? And he was so insecure about this baby who had the title king of the Jews that he gave an order for all children, two years old and younger, all boys in the area of Bethlehem to be killed. God protected Jesus, and now 30 years have passed, and Herod the Great's Herod the Great, Herald, <laughs> Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, is now having to deal with Jesus. Who is this Jesus that everyone is talking about? He had to know so that he could determine, is this someone that needs to be eliminated? Is this a threat? So verse 14, some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man that I beheaded has been raised from the dead. This is the first mention of John the Baptist since that opening chapter of Mark. After that opening chapter where, where John the Baptist baptized Jesus, he has disappeared from the pages. And now we're getting the, the backstory. Now we're seeing what it is that happened to John the Baptist. It's possible that Herod has a guilty conscience. He knows what he did to John the Baptist, and now he hears about Jesus, and he thinks that this is the ghost of John the Baptist who's come back to get me because of what I did to him. I, I beheaded him. 
Well, why did he do that? Verse 17 fills us in with the, the backstory. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. The reason John the Baptist has been imprisoned by King Herod is because John had the audacity to confront this Jewish king about his living arrangements. Herod's family had, had so much drama in it that even Jerry Springer today would, would blush. To understand why John the Baptist confronted Herod Antipas, we need to step back a generation and go back to Herod the Great. Herod the Great had ten wives that we know about, and with all of those wives, he had many sons, and every single one of his wives wanted their son to be the heir to the throne, to take the place of, of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an incredibly insecure king who wouldn't think twice about killing a wife or even killing one of his own children if he perceived them to be a, a threat his insecurity filtered down the family tree. And so the story that Mark is telling us today involves three of Herod the Great's sons. It involves Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Aristobulus. Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. Herod Philip, Aristobulus's brother, fell in love with his niece and married his niece. So now Uncle Philip and niece Herodias are married. Together they have a daughter named Salome. Herod Antipas is on his way to Rome. He stops in Caesarea Philippi to visit his brother Philip and his wife Herodias. And while there, the sparks fly between Herod Antipas and Herodias. And he falls in love with her. And he asks her to, to marry him, but there's some obvious obstacles one, she is presently married to his brother, to Philip. Two, Herod Antipas is also married. In an arranged marriage by the emperor, he's married to the daughter of an Arabian king, likely to keep the peace between the Jews and the, the Arabs. And so Herodias says, I, I'll marry you, but only if you get a divorce from your wife. And so he divorces his Arabian wife, and the two of them get married. Herodias leaves Philip, takes her daughter Salome, and now joins Antipas. Love wants what love wants. Herodias agrees to leave Philip, marries Herod Antipas. Even though he was a king and he had all the power to do whatever he wanted, he was still a Jewish king which meant that Herod was expected to follow the laws of the Jews. He was expected to follow the laws laid out for them in the scriptures. His decision to divorce his wife, marry his 
niece, the wife of his brother, was a bold affront to the law of God. Leviticus 18.16 is unambiguous. It says, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife while your brother's alive. There's the whole practice of leveret marriage when your brother dies. They actually have an obligation to the brother's wife. But while your brother's still alive, don't do it. It's not a good thing. Do not marry. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. If Herod was a Gentile, if he was an unbeliever, then nobody would question what he did or who he did it with. I mean, who cares what Leviticus 18 says or any other scripture for that matter, for someone who doesn't subscribe to it as the word of God. But Herod was Jewish, and so there was an expectation that he uphold the law. I think we can draw a parallel for us today. Today, I don't think we as believers can, nor should we expect people who are not believers to live according to the word of God. Why would they? They don't recognize the, the scriptures as, as having any authority. But likewise, we who are believers, we believe that the word of God has been given to us by God to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in the ways of righteousness. Simply put, the word of God is our rule. And we stumble and fall all the time. All the time we stumble. But when we do, what we, we aren't permitted to do is bend the word of God to, to fit us. Rather, we align ourselves with the word of God. We confess, I blew it. I stumbled, I fell, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to repent and align myself with the word of God. King Herod had no intention of obeying God's law on this matter. His heart was hard. He wanted... Herodias and nobody, including God himself, was going to tell him to stop. A Jewish king whose marriage was an offense to God would have trouble holding on to the loyalty of the people. But who would dare confront Herod? Who would dare tell him, hey, what you're doing, it's not right? Cue John the Baptist. John the Baptist's message was consistent. Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He proclaimed that same bold message to kings as well as to, to peasants. It didn't matter who was before John the Baptist. Before God, we are all sinners in need of forgiveness and in need of repentance. And so John confronts the king. John confronted Herod with the truth that his marriage to Herodias was unlawful according to the word of God. Naturally, Herod didn't want to hear that. And Herodias really didn't want to hear that. And so using the power that was available to them as king, they imprisoned John. He is now their, their prisoner. If Herodias had her way, he would have been killed on the spot. Like, let's just get rid of him. Why keep this person who's confronting us about our sin around? Let's kill him and be done with it. But Herod believes in his heart that this is a man of God. 
that this is a holy man, a righteous man, and, and the things that John is saying are puzzling to Herod, but there's, they've got the ring of truth, and he's interested, and so he, he's not willing to, to kill John, and so he actually protects him as his prisoner. Herodias sat back and waited. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. This is Salome. This is Herodias's daughter. This is the daughter of Herod Philip. And she's now coming and dancing before Herod and his guests and it's very likely that this dance is a lewd dance. It's a, a sexually provocative dance. And it's also very likely that Herod's guests are slightly, if not completely, intoxicated at this time. It's a bad combination. Herod observes how much her dance pleases everybody in the room. And then he tries to impress his, his prestigious guests by making this grand gesture. Verse 22, the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried back to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. If he denied her request, he's going to lose face in front of all of these important people, all of his guests, and he knows in his heart of hearts he's just not willing to do that. When it comes right down to it, that power that he has is more important than anything else. He's greatly distressed, we read, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and he brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother on the hearing on on. The hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So imagine with me if we are the people to whom Mark is writing. We are the Christians in Rome. And he sends us this gospel and we're reading about John the Baptist. This is a story that we can identify with. We recognize how senseless and how quick and how easy People who are following Christ can be killed just to, at the whim of a, a king. This is our, our life. The Christians in Rome are all too familiar with this daily persecution and this, this martyrdom. What was their crime? They sought to love God. They sought to love their neighbor. They proclaimed the hope that we have in Jesus Christ to, to everyone they tried to live according to God's word. They refused to bow down before the emperor or any other idol. And for this, they're fed to lions. This great persecution, this martyrdom, 
was the devil's best punch. Surely it would be the knockout punch, the knockout blow causing this Christian movement to to end as quickly as it began. But the devil wasn't prepared for God's counter. Instead of the blood of the martyrs silencing the gospel, the blood of the martyrs contributed to the spread of the gospel. It became the seed of the church. John the Baptist's head on a platter did not cause believers to turn away from Christ out of fear. Seeing those people in the arena be fed to lions did not cause believers to turn away. Strangely enough, it it emboldened them and it empowered them. They saw what it was that those believers had, the incredible faith, the assurance of the resurrection to eternal life. John's disciples heard of his execution. They came, they took his body, they laid it on a tomb, and the mission continued. I've thought about this passage a lot this week, and and Karen asked me last night, she said, so what does this mean for us today? It's always the big question. What's the takeaway? And and I think there's, there's several takeaways. I think the first takeaway for us today is a warning about power. Power is not a bad thing in and of itself, but power is a dangerous thing. It's like electricity. Working with electricity, electricity does such great things, but you have to be mindful of it. It's a, a dangerous thing. Used wisely, power can be used for great good, but it can also cause great harm. Christianity, if you look historically, Christianity has always been at its worst when it has attempted to accomplish its mission by playing king of the hill. Whenever Christianity has turned to power, it's always been at its worst. The hill that Jesus Christ was king of was Calvary's hill. He who had all the power, Philippians says, chose to empty himself of that power and went to the cross on our behalf. If he's our Lord, if he's our Savior, if he's the one that we are following, does it not mean that we have to do the same thing? That we are called to empty ourselves? Jesus actually warned us about how we handle power. He said, you know that the Gentiles, you know how they do power and how they lord it over one another. And their high officials exercise authority over over them. You know how they like to play king of the hill. But not so with you, Jesus said. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must become your slave. We've got to beware of how we use power. The passage also speaks to the truth for us as believers that the word of God is our rule. King Herod and Herodias They wanted to make up their own rules. Love wants what love wants. Never mind what God says. When John confronted them with the truth of God's word, Herod's response was to imprison him. I don't want to hear it. Herodias' response was to kill him. 
the word of God and the ways of this world are frequently at odds with one another. Consequently, we are often going to be in these circumstances where we face challenging decisions. Are we going to try and be faithful to God's word and thus be out of step with the world? Or are we going to be try, try and be faithful to the ways of the world and thus be out of step with God? I would also ask this, is there someone in your life who has the green light to say to you, brother, sister, I'm not so sure about this thing that you're doing. Can we talk about it? The world would say, it's nobody's business. Stay in your lane, mind your own business, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. But that's not the way of God. God sends people like John the Baptist. Think of David. David needed Nathan. He was blind to his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. David needed Nathan. The Corinthian church, they needed a letter from the Apostle Paul to say, hey, friends, this is the way to walk. This is not the way to walk. Herod and Herodias needed John the Baptist, but instead they adopted the world's posture. Who do you think you are to question us? Finally, I think this passage is a reminder that we as Christians can and should expect to suffer. We have been so blessed to, to live at a time and a place where we don't have to suffer much to follow Christ. Much of the world is not able to say that. Are we prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Whenever God's kingdom grows, it's always accompanied by suffering. The two go hand in hand. Are we prepared, are you prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel? As I've thought about that and thought about the church, I've thought about the last few years and how we have displayed we are not ready to suffer. The church in the U.S. has grown accustomed to being the king of the hill for a long, long time. Things are shifting. The United States is following the way of Europe. We are no longer the land of Christendom. We live at a time that is called post-Christian. And as we live during this time, we are very likely going to be confronted with suffering. Paul wrote a letter to those same Roman Christians that Mark is writing to, and he said, rejoice. Actually, rejoice in your suffering. Because of what suffering does, it produces in us perseverance and character and hope. Join me as we pray. Father God, this, is, uh, this has been a challenging passage. But I'm thankful for your word that, that does speak to us, even today, with things that are so relevant. Lord, we pray that you'd be working in us, that you'd be transforming us so that we would be able to follow you um, in those circumstances where we're blessed and it's easy, but also in those circumstances where it's so difficult. And we may have to pay a price. Lord, give us your strength. And again, Lord, we thank you for all the people who have gone before us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.